Good morning, Living Hope Christian Center. Good to see you all here today. You say, how can I see you here today? I can see you. I see Sean and Carol Dawn sitting over there. What's up, Sean? What's up? I see uh, Jason sitting right here in the front row with your braids, I mean your dreadlocks, and uh, Kevin and Sylvia. Kevin, give me a mercy. Can you give me a mercy? Are you there? I'm going to look real stupid if none of these people are here, so I hope y'all are at church. <laughs> At any rate, uh, I want to greet you from San Diego, California, where I'm hanging out with my friends at Kairos Christian Church in San Diego. And uh, I got some of my friends here with me. Kairos, say hello to Living Hope. Living Hope. Living Hope, say hello, Kairos Church. Say hi, Kairos Church. Just pretend, pretend y'all heard that. They said it. <laughs> they said it. All right. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. This is. Uh, Sunday morning and uh, I'm just so thankful to God for the opportunity to be with you. Uh, if you're a visitor here at Living Hope Christian Center, I want to thank you for being here today. Uh, when I get back, when I get back in town, uh, would you come and introduce yourself to me? I'm just trusting that you're coming back. Uh, if you do come back, uh, I would like to meet you and, and uh, we're so thankful to have you here today. Uh, we're, this is part three of our Open House series, and our Open House series is about our vision and mission and values as a church. And today, uh, we're going to tackle our third strategic anchor, and our third strategic anchor is what we call missional living. Now, as we said in previous messages, the vision statement for our church is God truly among us. And our mission statement is sons and daughters who prophesy. Now, the foundation of this is the, the conviction that I have deep in my heart. I'm absolutely 100% sure that nobody in the world needs an encounter with the church. But secondly, I'm absolutely 100% sure that everybody in the world needs an encounter with God. And so what we are about as a church at Living Hope Christian Center is facilitating a place in which people can encounter God. I see the church kind of like a restaurant. I see myself kind of like a host. Like when people come into the, the I, I'm, you know, I'm not the chef and neither am I, what I'm serving is not the menu. Uh, the restaurant is a place where we simply provide tables where individuals who come into this house can sit at the table with God. And the goal is for each and every person who comes into this house to sit at the table with God. And, and you know what we find? Not everybody who comes into the church is ready to have a real encounter with God. Not everybody who comes into the church is ready to meet with God. Kind of like people who come into a restaurant might not yet be ready to eat the food. Uh, some people come into the church and they stand around the back wall of the church and they smell the food, sometimes for months, weeks, and years before they're ready to sit at the table. But I say to each and every one of you that whenever you are ready to sit at the table, and to have your focused time with God, I tell you that God is ready to sit at the table with you and to reveal himself to you and to show you his grace and his mercy and his love. And we're ready to provide a place for you anytime, whenever you're ready to have your encounter with God. But our vision is not, our vision for the church is not the greatness of the church, it's the greatness of God. And we believe in the church because we believe that it is the place that Jesus has determined in his sovereignty to make himself known. He said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And, and when he used the word church there, the Greek term is ekklesia, which means assembly. In other words, if I say we don't need an encounter with church, we just need an encounter with God, then somebody might say, so then why do we need to come to church at all? You know, why don't we just stay home and just go into our prayer closets and pray? We can have encounters with God by ourselves at home. Well, it's because Jesus said he was building his ekklesia, which is his assembly. The church is fundamentally the assembly 
assembly of the Lord. It's the place where the people of God who are hungering for the presence of God come together to seek the face of God, to encounter the presence of God, and there is a heightened availability of the presence of God. There are, you have access to God in a way when we come together as the body of Christ that we do not have access to at home in our prayer closet. So that's our vision, God truly among us, like we have real, that we would have real encounters, that we would facilitate real encounters with the real presence of God. God is more than a philosophy, he's more than a theology, he's more than a set of doctrines, he's more than a set of rules, he's more than a set of beliefs. He is real, he is a real person, he is the most powerful being in the universe, and even that does not even do justice to who he is and to his character and to his person. And if God is real, then we want each and every person who comes through these doors to experience the reality of the presence of God. That's our vision, God truly among us. Now our mission statement, sons and daughters who prophesy. Now sons and daughters who prophesy is beyond simply raising up good church members who attend church well and, and, and uh, participate in ministries and give good offerings and, and you know, learn the sermons and, and you know, learn how to worship the way we worship. You know, you gotta learn when to lift the hands and when to put the hands down during worship. Like, that's not what it's all about. Sons and daughters who prophesy means that our job, that our goal, that our mission is to raise up a generation of mature sons and daughters who move in the Spirit of God and through whom the Spirit of God moves. That is, it's one thing to encounter God. When you encounter God, that's God impacting your life. But when you begin to prophesy, that's God impacting the lives of others through your life. And so it's not enough simply for you to have dynamic encounters with God and, and to come into His presence and experience Him and, and say, wow, you walk out and go, wow, that was powerful and I felt the presence of God and God was real in this house. That's great, but where's the outflow that comes out of your life? What we're looking for is more than the inflow of the Spirit into your life. We're looking for the outflow of the Spirit out of your life. And that falls right into this category of what we call missional living and we're going to talk about this uh, today. First of all, I'm going to look at Matthew chapter 4, uh, verses 18, and, 18 through 20. And this is what it says. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. It's interesting here that Jesus, number one, he's not a well-known rabbi of his time. You see, in, his, in, in the day and age of Jesus, when you were about 15 years of age, you qualified to become a disciple of a rabbi. And what you would do is you would go to the school of a famous rabbi of the time and you would sit at his feet and wait to be addressed. When you were addressed, you would ask the rabbi for the right or for, the, for, for permission to follow him. The rabbi would then give you a test, and if you passed the test, the rabbi would accept you as his disciple. Once you were accepted as a disciple of a rabbi, from about age 15 to 30 years of age, you followed that rabbi everywhere he went, you listened to everything he said, your job was to fully, totally, and completely learn and absorb the teaching of your rabbi so that you could become like your rabbi in every way. It was said that a good disciple was covered in the dust of his rabbi because the disciple walked so closely behind the rabbi on the road that the dust from the rabbi's feet was on the robe of the disciples. And if the dust of your rabbi was found on your robe, you were called a good disciple. 
Now, once you finished that 15-year process, you did not immediately become a rabbi. At age 30, you actually qualified to become a Torah teacher or a teacher of the law. You see this throughout the Gospels. They talk about the, the scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law. The teachers of the law, or Torah teachers, were not quite rabbis yet. They were about 30 years of age. They just started their teaching ministry. They did not yet take disciples. They were trying to gain credibility in the eyes of the religious community of Israel. And they spent about 15 years uh, gaining credibility as a, as a teacher of the law that had some type of reputation, some type of authority. And somewhere around 45 years of age or older, as they got older, wiser, more mature, and had a greater reputation, they could become rabbis. And once they became a rabbi, then they could take disciples and start their own school. Number one, Jesus is 30 years old. He doesn't qualify to be a rabbi yet. Nobody's heard of him yet. That's why nobody is coming to him, sitting at his feet, asking for the right to become his disciple. Instead, he approaches these, these individuals who are in the boat with their fathers and they're fishing. Now, why is, why is he, why are, number one, why are these young men in boats with their fathers and not sitting at the feet of some rabbi? because they were probably rejected by the rabbis of Israel. They probably did go try to become uh, disciples of some rabbi, and they didn't pass the test. It happened every year, and the rabbi would tell you, you know, sorry, but you didn't make the cut. You need to go back home, and you need to go help your dad with the family business. And, and once that happened, you went back to the family business, and whatever your dad did, that's what you're going to be. And so you got Simon and Andrew in the boat with their father, and Simon and Andrew are fishermen. Why? Because their daddy's a fisherman. And because their daddy's a fisherman, they're fishermen. And now they've come home to take over the family business. And then you had uh, John and, and uh, James and John, uh, the sons of Zebedee, in the boat with their father, and they're mending their nets in the same type of situation. Jesus walks up on the shore, and, and, and uh, <laughs> Jesus is kind of like a telemarketer, <laughs> when you think about it, right? Like... A telemarketer, like, telemarketers, I, I can't stand telemarketers, right? <laughs> I mean, like, they call you, and you, I was like, how did you get my number? D does that just drive you crazy? Like, who gave you permission? It should be illegal for somebody to call you out of the blue and try to sell you something that you don't want, right? And especially when they're trying to sell you something that costs you something. It costs you a price that you don't want to pay for a product that you don't want to possess. And it's all a waste of time, right? But can you imagine how difficult it would be to be a telemarketer, right? To be the one making those cold calls, to be the one that's calling people and, and, and you're dealing with rejection all day long, people cussing you out, people hanging up the phone in your face and, and people you know, clowning you and all of that stuff. Some people trying to waste your time just to make you mad. I wanna, I wanna start a ministry for telemarketers, like just a, <laughs> you know, just a space where we can you know, minister to them and we just need to get a prophetic team around them to just prophesy into their lives and encourage them and help them find a new line of work. Because <laughs> the whole telemarketing industry needs to go the way of Enron, and it needs to go that way quick, okay? Because it's ruining the whole cell phone. But anyway, if you can think of Jesus as a telemarketer, right? Just for a moment, he, he, he comes up on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he makes a cold call to two guys, a guy named Andrew and a guy named Simon. And he simply says, number one, come and follow me, which did not mean come and hang out with me, come and chill with me, come and join my fan club, the party's over here, come party with me. No, he, when he said come and follow me, what he meant was come and abandon your way of life to embrace my way of life. Come and follow me means make me the paradigm for your life. That is, whatever your life revolved around up to this point, stop it. Come and allow your life to revolve around me. 
Allow me to be the pattern for your life. Spend the rest of your life seeking to become like me. Because in ancient Israel, discipleship was for life. If you were a disciple of a rabbi, you were that rabbi's disciple for life. This unqualified 30-year-old rabbi is inviting these unqualified disciples into this lifelong process called discipleship. Which means when he said, follow me, he was making a devastating, it was literally, it was a devastating request. It was a devastating invitation. Make a decision right now to leave behind everything that you thought had to do with your life. To abandon the direction of your life up to this moment. Make a decision right now to abandon the direction of your life up to this moment and come and follow me and leave behind everything that would hinder you from following me. This is the call of discipleship. This is what di discipleship is all about. It's not about making a decision to come to church every week, you know, all that's, though that's cool. It's making a decision to walk away from everything that would hinder you from following Jesus with your whole heart, with your whole mind, with your whole soul for the rest of your whole life. Like, that's what it means to be a disciple. It was a devastating call. But he also adds a promise to it. It said in the previous verse, they were fishermen. And then it says, come and follow me, Jesus says, and I'll make you fishers of men. Which means I'm going to reorient your life in such a way that you're no longer fishing for fish, now you're fishing for men. When Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men, what he is literally saying is by the time I'm done with you at the end of this process, you're going to be the one reaching other men and other women to come and follow me. Jesus at this moment is a fisher of men. He's fishing for these men. But he says, I'm going to make missionaries of you, is literally what he's saying. He's literally saying, by the time I'm done with you, you're going to be missionaries. Now, now we need to stop and consider this for a moment. The original call to come follow Jesus, because how do we invite people to, to, to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior? We, we tell people, you know, if you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, he's going to forgive you of all of your sins, going to take away all of your guilt and shame, he's going to heal you of all your sicknesses, he's going to give you blessing and breakthrough in all of your life, and he's going to make your life happy for the rest of your life. Do you want to receive Jesus? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I would like that. But what if we approach people on the street with this invitation? I'll tell you what. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ, and he's going to make you a missionary. Like, I mean, that's the promise that he makes them. He doesn't promise them money. He doesn't promise them fame. He doesn't promise them blessing. He doesn't even promise to forgive their sins. He doesn't even promise to take away their shame. He promises to make them missionaries. Like, that's the original deal. Come and follow me. Here's the deal. Come and follow me, and I will make you a missionary. Like, you are going to reach people for the gospel. You know what's crazy is that, that we got believers in the church today who have been saved for 10, 15 years and still haven't accepted this invitation of Jesus. Like, still haven't responded to this call. Because we see that, that missional call, that, that call to a missional lifestyle as being for a specific group of believers that we call, quote-unquote, 
pastors, teachers, evangelists, missionaries, apostles, prophets, whatever we call them, we give them special labels and we say, that's, that's only for those individuals. I don't have to answer that call. But this is the original call to discipleship. And the question for you today is, have you embraced that call of Jesus? Have you said yes to that invitation of Jesus? Now, what I want us to understand for a moment is what Jesus means by becoming a fisher of men. It actually constitutes a complete change of orientation as far as our lives are concerned. In John chapter 4, going over to John chapter 4, uh, Jesus has this encounter with this woman at the well in Samaria. He's passing through Samaria, and I love to talk about this passage of Scripture. It's one of my favorite passages. He sends his disciples off to get some food. He's like, you guys need to make an in-and-out run. So, you know, <laughs> sends them out to in-and-out, and uh, uh, he says, stop at McDonald's for the chocolate shake, because in-and-out's chocolate shakes are terrible. So he, he puts in his order, <laughs> right? I mean, am I right? Can I get a witness? <laughs> right? So he sends the disciples off to get some food. He's really just trying to get rid of them because he knows he has a divine appointment with this woman. He sits at the well and he waits. About three o'clock in the afternoon, this woman comes. She comes to draw water from the well. And Jesus says to her, give me something to drink. And she's shocked. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan, to give you something to drink. Which is crazy because Jews did not speak to Samaritans, but not only that, Jewish men did not speak to, to women of any kind in public, even Jewish women. So this woman is a woman and she's a Samaritan woman and Jesus is talking to her publicly. And Jesus responds, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who asked you to give him something to drink, you would ask me and I would give you living water that you would never thirst again. And the woman says, Sir, the well is deep and you have nothing to draw with. Are you greater than our father Jacob who dug this well and drank from it himself and his sons? And Jesus says, Whoever drinks the water from this well is going to thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give will never thirst again. That water is going to become a well on the inside of you, springing forth into everlasting life. And the woman says, Give me this water so that I don't have to come back to this well anymore. Why? She's coming to draw water at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The women in town came to draw water at 9 o'clock in the morning. She couldn't come at 9 o'clock in the morning. Why? She was the talk of the town. She was an outcast in that city. She says, give me this water so that I don't have to come back to this well. And Jesus says, go get your husband. And the woman says, I don't have a husband. Now, I, I mean... I think Jesus messed up right there, honestly, because if it were me and I'm talking to that woman and she says, give me this woman, I mean, give me this, give me this water, excuse me, I would have taken her hand right there and said, repeat after me, Lord Jesus. <laughs> that, like, that's the time to lead her in the sinner's prayer. But Jesus changes channels on her and says, go get your husband. And she says, I have no husband. Jesus says, you've had five husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband. So you're right when you say... I have no husband. Jesus was putting his finger on the fundamental problem of this woman. Her problem was that she was a fisher of men. But the kind of men she was fishing for, she was fishing for a husband her entire life. 
There's some of you in the congregation today and you are fishers of men, but you're fishing for the wrong kind of men. It's not, it's not kingdom, it's not the kingdom fishers of men, but you're, you're fishing for men's. <laughs> when I say she was a fisher of men, it meant she was always fishing for the affirmation of men. When I say she's a fisher of men, she was always fishing to get something from men. She was fishing for affirmation. She was fishing for some type of provision. She was, she was fishing for some type of acceptance. And we can spend our entire lives as fishers of men, but we're fishing to get something from men. We are all naturally fishers of men. We're all naturally like that woman at the well. We all naturally live our lives searching for affirmation, searching for provision, searching for acceptance, searching for, to get past our rejection. And we, also, we often come to Jesus and we just fit him right into that paradigm. Just like we're seeking affirmation and we're seeking all these things from everyone else in our lives, then we come to Jesus seeking to get that same stuff from Jesus. And Jesus has this encounter with the woman at the end of which the scripture says she left her water pots behind and she went into the town and what did she do into the town she went proclaiming come meet a man who told me everything i ever did is he not the christ she went into into the town and she suddenly became a fisher of men but not the way she was fishing for men before because she didn't go into the town looking for affirmation for herself. She didn't go into the town looking for acceptance for herself. She went into the town to tell everybody about the encounter with Jesus that she just had. She went into the town to tell everybody she met that if you come to the, this Jesus, I, I tell you what, if you meet this Jesus, you can have the same kind of encounter with him that I had. And, and the, she brought the whole town to Jesus. And they all, I mean, this woman who was the outcast of the town brings the whole town to Jesus because her whole life is reoriented by one encounter with Jesus. One encounter with Jesus can reorient your whole life. But that reorientation is marked by, is characterized by a transformation from seeking affirmation for myself seeking acceptance for myself, looking for a place of belonging for myself, looking for some type of provision or blessing for myself, looking for opportunities for myself. We shift from being self-opportunists to kingdom opportunists. A kingdom opportunist is simply one who's looking for an opportunity for the kingdom of God. Come follow me, Jesus says. And I will make you a fisher of men. Now, this is, this is kind of the paradigm for where the disciples are going. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 and following, Jesus comes to the Mount of Olives and the scripture says, when the disciples saw him, they worshipped him, which is crazy. Because they did not have a theology of the deity of Christ yet. But they see him on the Mount of Olives there in Matthew 28 in his resurrected glory. And when they see him in his resurrected glory, instinctively, they just worship him. Like worship is what happens when God is present. It's instinctual. Like if you, were, if you stood in the very presence of God, you couldn't help it. You would worship. You would just surrender everything. And that's why the scripture says one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because we're all going to stand before the, the judgment seat of Christ. 
And it doesn't matter what you believe theologically. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you're going to confess. Your, your knee is going to bow. Your tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So these disciples, they see him and instinctively, they just start worshiping him. And then he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth is given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Now this is crazy. Remember I said, Jesus was 30 years old when he called disciples, okay? These guys were probably in their late teens, somewhere between 16 and 19 years old probably, when he called them. And how long did he walk with them? You can say it. Three years. For three years. For three years he walks with these disciples. How long was discipleship? 15 years. And then another 15 years of gaining credibility. Jesus walks with them for three years and then says, you're all rabbis. You're all rabbis. Now you're going to go make disciples, but he does not tell them, go call 12 disciples, each of you. He says, go make disciples of all the nations. All of them. And they're like, this is crazy. Like, how are we going to make disciples of all nations? He says, I'm going to give you a simple strategy. Number one, baptize them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And number two, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Now, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The word baptize is a technical term. In the Greek, it's baptizo. The word literally means to immerse. So literally what Jesus is saying is, immerse them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, in ancient Hebrew, whenever you speak of the name of someone, or whenever you speak of the name of something, it represents the presence. He's saying literally, baptize them or immerse them into the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's not simply talking about dunking people underwater. But baptism, being dunked underwater, is a symbol of, of your inclusion in Christ. It's a symbol of your being immersed into the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not done simply because you sprinkle soup. I mean, you could just, if you really wanted to get technical about it, you could just walk around with a pail of water and just, you know, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just everybody you see, you say, I did what he said, and then you start teaching them to obey. That's, the goal is not to get them into the water. The goal is to get them into the Spirit. The goal is to immerse them into the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Which means that the primary focus of missional living, the primary mode and operation of missional living, is to be a carrier of the presence of God. That is my number one responsibility. If I, if I make the decision that I want to be a fisher of men, that I want to live missionally, my number one goal is not to learn apologetics. And I'm not against apologetics, don't get me wrong. My number one goal is not to sharpen my theology. My number one goal is not to become, to learn how to argue better. My number one goal is to be a carrier of the presence of God. I truly believe that no matter how sharp of an intellect you have and how sharp and keen of an ability that you have to speak theologically and to convince people of theological truths, Nothing saves except the presence of God. Nobody's going to believe in Jesus unless they actually meet Jesus. And that means that our responsibility when we seek to live missionally 
is to bring the presence of God wherever we go. God, let those who I come in contact with have an encounter with your presence, God. I, I want an increase of your presence each and every day. I want an increase of your presence so that wherever I go, people experience the life-giving presence of God. Immerse them into the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then number two, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Number one, immerse them into the presence. And then number two, teach them to obey. The church has almost completely abandoned number one, but we're really good at number two, aren't we? We're constantly trying to tell unbelievers that they need to obey Jesus. We're constantly trying to enforce our beliefs on the rest of the world. How many times have I heard Christians say things like, I was at work and the person next to me was playing music that I didn't like, and I said, excuse me, can you not play that music? I'm a Christian, and it, that, that music, it, and that, I'm a Christian, and that music, it offends me because I'm a Christian. And they said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We spend so much time trying to pad our environment and tell the world around us, can you please, I know you're not a Christian, but could you act like one when I'm around? And we call that bearing witness. That is not a witness to the gospel. Trying to sterilize and you know, spraying unbelievers with your religious juice when you come in the room. <laughs> you know, that is not a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, somebody asked me one time, he said, could you please come and hang out with my friends and have lunch with us? I'm like, yeah, I would love to. And he said, good, because I want you to tell this friend that he needs to stop sleeping around. And I want you to tell that friend that he needs to stop smoking weed. And I need you to tell that friend that he needs to go to school and do, get better grades. And, I, and, and he starts telling me all these things that he wants his friends to do. And I stopped him. I said, hold on. Before we ask them to buy the field, don't you think we should help them find the pearl of great price? Like, we want people to buy the field, but we forget, why did you buy the field? Like, I mean, why did you give up everything you gave up when you came to Christ? You gave up everything you gave up when you came to Christ, not simply because you discovered the meaning of right and wrong. It wasn't actually even a moral issue. It was the fact that you found something so much greater and so much more valuable so that everything that you had to walk away from when you came to Christ was nothing in comparison with the glory of Christ that you gained, the presence of Christ that you experienced. you got to find the pearl in the field before you go sell all you have and buy the field. It will not help anyone to start trying to obey Christ before they've actually met Christ. The number one goal of our witness and our mission is to bring people into the presence of Christ. And as we bring people into an encounter with the presence of Christ, their hearts are going to open to Him and they're going to want to know Him. You know, living missionally is not just about going across the world. The one thing I love about our missions department here at Living Hope Christian Center is that our, our missions department provides opportunities for everyday Christians to experience what it means to live missionally. In order to go on a mission trip with us here at Living Hope Christian Center, you've got to go through our School of World Missions that Pastor Sonny, my wife, put together and has, has uh, developed over the last 15 years. And uh, if you go through our School of World Missions, you're going to learn things like how to preach. You're going to learn how to cast out demons. You're going to learn how to pray for the sick. And you're going to learn all of these things. And then after all of the training, you're going to go with us to Indonesia. And guess what you're going to do? You're going to actually pray for the sick. And you're going to, you're going to actually cast out demons. And you're going, to actually, uh, you're going to actually preach the gospel. Like You're going to do all these things. And the crazy thing, the thing I love about our mission trips is that it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how, how young you are. But virtually everybody on our team comes back seeing miracles. 
You know, I mean, I loved when, you know, Desiree and, and Ray Ray, Ray Corona. How, where is Ray? Sean, give, give Ray a call. Tell him I want to see him in church next Sunday. It's been too long. Tell him to get his butt back here. And where's Desiree? Get Desiree back in here, too. Matter, matter of fact, no, I, I'm not going to go there. That's, that's okay. I'm going to stop calling folks out. Because <laughs> watch Desiree be there. <laughs> and, watch, and watch Ray. If you're there, praise the Lord. Good to see you. <laughs> But I'll never forget seeing Ray Ray and Desiree, 15 and 16 years old, respectively, at the crusade we did in Tuluk Dalam in Indonesia. And they were praying for people and they were getting healed. Like deaf ears were opening and, and blind eyes were seeing. I mean, it was just crazy. You know, I'll never forget there was a last time I was in Indonesia, we were doing a crusade and there was a moment when I was standing on the platform and our team was down there on the field praying for wave after wave after wave of sick people that were coming in to, to receive prayer. And there were so many miracles happening, but I was standing on the platform and I was just praying over everybody. And all of a sudden I felt this rush of the Holy Spirit come upon me and I stepped down from the platform. And when I stepped down from the platform, I just felt this move of the Holy Spirit and I walked up to this blind lady and I looked her in her eyes and I put my hand on her head and said, I command you to see in Jesus' name. And guess what happened? Nothing. She didn't see. And so I walked past her and went to the next person. Jason came right behind me and walked up to that woman and said, I command you to see in Jesus' name. And her eyes opened and she saw. <laughs> right? Like, that was crazy. Like, Jason got that miracle, right? You know? It was uh, a couple days later we were ministering uh, in... Um, uh, what's the name of that island? That other island that we had to take the, the speedboat, a six-hour speedboat to. It'll come to me in a second. And there was this girl who was demon-possessed. And all of us were praying for her and trying to cast the demon out. And the demon wasn't coming out. And all of a sudden, Jason comes over and says, let me try. And he goes, come out of her in Jesus' name. And guess what? The demon comes out and she's free. It's the thing I love about being on the mission field is that sickness and disease and demons, they don't care what your title is, they don't care what your position is in the church. That, that is, every believer who, who devotes themselves to seek God in this way, you're going to see God move. And, and everybody that we take on the mission field, no matter who you are, no matter how young you are, you might say, I'm not, I'm not old enough, or I'm not mature enough, or I don't study the Bible enough, or I don't pray enough, or, or I don't come to church enough. Whatever it is that you would think to disqualify yourself, God doesn't care about any of that stuff. The moment you commit yourself to live missionally, God's going to show you His glory. And we come back from the mission field and we have all these testimonies and, and everybody's like, yeah, this is what I saw God do and this is what I saw God do and this is what I saw God do. And it's all packed into this 10-day period of time in which we'll take a, a group of 15 people, 17 people, 20 people to the mission field where we get to live missionally. And then you come home and you go back to living like a knucklehead, like Jason. <laughs> Just kidding, Jason. You come back home and you go back to living the normal, average Christian life. And we even see people come back home and, and walk away from Christ, backslide, just go their own way. Isn't it interesting that we think in order to live missionally, we've got to go to the mission field on the other side of the world. But when we say that missional living is one of our strategic anchors, it doesn't mean that we want everybody to go on a mission. Don't get me wrong. I do want everybody to go on a mission trip. I mean, I have actually flirted with the idea of making one mission trip every three years mandatory for every member of Living Hope Christian Center. And I'm so tempted to do it starting in 2019. 
so tempted to do it. Why? Because number one, if you look at our church, the most prolific leaders and the most anointed leaders typically are those who have gone through School of World Missions and gone on the mission field. The ones who are able to come home and steward what they gained Steward the knowledge of what you learned about yourself by being on the other side of the world and seeing God use you in a way that you never thought he could use you before. If you can come home and steward that, man, what kind of a powerful church would we be? But at the end of the day, the call to missional living may not require you to go to Indonesia. The call to missional living may not require you to go to Thailand or Ethiopia, but it may require you to cross the hall in your office to talk to somebody that God put on your heart. It may require you to cross the street from your house to knock on the door of, of a neighbor that God put on your heart. That is the call to missional living is really a call to be led by the Spirit, a call to be open and available to God. It's simply a call to live every day with the heart that says, God, I wanna to live today so you can use me anytime or anywhere. I wanna to live today. I wanna to be radically available to you. That's the call to missional living. Now we see this unfolding in Acts chapter 2 as the, the disciples are gathered on the day of Pentecost in the upper room. They're in the upper room not because it gets you closer to God to be at a higher place. They're in the upper room simply because they're scared. They got the doors locked. They got the windows locked. They got the windows closed. They got the curtains closed. They don't want anybody to know they're in there. And they're up there for 10 days and they're fasting and they're praying and they're seeking the face of God. They're believing for the coming of the Spirit because that's what Jesus told them would happen. But they had no idea what that would look like when the Spirit came. And all of a sudden there came a sound as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled the house where they were assembled. And this wind of the Spirit blows open the windows, blows open the doors, blows open the blinds. The first thing the Holy Spirit does when he comes is he turns a private meeting into a public meeting. If you invite the Holy Spirit to come into your life, the first thing he's going to do is take, care, take away your undercover brother status. <laughs> he's going to take away your ab ability to be incognito for Jesus. <laughs> You're not going to be able to hide anymore. Your life is going to be public. Your witness is going to be public. The first thing the Holy Spirit does is he outs you so that everyone knows that you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And this puts us into a realm of fear in which maybe I'm going to be persecuted. Maybe I'm going to be judged. But you know what? The Holy Spirit also brings boldness so that you don't care. You can judge me if you want. You can persecute me if you want. I'll just count myself worthy to have been persecuted for the sake of his name. That's the kind of boldness and the fullness of joy that the Holy Spirit is able to bring. But now you've got 120 people in the upper room that are now filled with the Holy Spirit and they're screaming in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, right? They don't even understand what they themselves are saying. But guess who does understand them? The people outside. There's a multitude gathered from every nation under heaven and they hear the commotion of the move of the Spirit in the upper room and they all gather outside to figure out what in the world is going on. And what are they doing outside? They're having theological debates about what's happening in the other upper room. Some people are saying, these people are just crazy. Other people say, no, nah, these people are drunk, which doesn't make any sense at all. Outside, they're talking about the move of the Spirit. Inside, they're experiencing the move of the Spirit. The first thing I want all of us to know is that we have a choice whether we want to be outside of the room or inside of the room. If we're going to be outside of the room, we're going to just stand outside and talk about the move of the Spirit, whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not, whether it's biblical or not, whether this manifestation was right or not, whether that manifestation was right or not, whether this person is crazy or really moving in the Spirit. And we call it discernment, but all it is is separating ourselves from the move of the Spirit and standing outside of the room arguing about it. Or we can come inside of the room and seek the Spirit of God. 
Do you know what? If you don't like what's going on in one room, just open your mouth and close your eyes and lift up your hands and seek God for a move of the Spirit for yourself. In other words, instead of criticizing what God is doing in one part of the body of Christ, how about becoming an example of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your part of the body of Christ? Amen. And so Peter, he becomes a bridge between the inside and the outside. He looks on the inside and sees the clear work of the, the Holy Spirit. He looks on the outside and sees all of this confusion and all of this inability to understand what God is doing by His Spirit. And this becomes the occasion for the preaching of the gospel. And he stands up among the eleven and he addresses the crowd. Men and brethren, these men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Does that sound familiar? That's our mission statement. Sons and daughters shall prophesy. Peter says, this is the beginning of that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. God spoke by the prophet Joel and said the day would come when he'd pour out a spirit on everybody, and our sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Upon my servants and handmaidens I will pour out my spirit in that day, and they shall prophesy. Peter says, this is that. This is that move. If you want to understand what this is, you've got to understand the prophet Joel's prophecy. Peter is, in his preaching of the gospel, he is explaining and elucidating the clear work of the Spirit of God. If you want to preach the gospel, if you want to reach unbelievers for the resurrection and glory of Jesus... You simply have to, number one, display the clear work of the Spirit of God in your life. If they cannot see the clear work of the Spirit of God in your life, you can forget about preaching to them. If they can't see any difference in you once you came to Christ, if they can't sense anything different about your life once you came to Christ, forget preaching to your friends, forget trying to reach them for Jesus. The number one thing that you and I should be pursuing from God is a radical self-transformation by the power of the Spirit so that those who see me are able to say, you're different. Something's different about your life, and I want to know what it is. This crowd gathered because they wanted to know what it was that's going on in that upper room. Listen, listen, people are willing to turn to Christ if they see a change in your life that is worth investigating. But in the lives of most believers, there's, there's not a change worth, worth sorry, there's not a change worth investigating. There's actually a credibility gap, right? There's a credibility gap because you've got a bumper sticker that says Jesus is my co-pilot, but yet you drive like you got a demon. <laughs> right? There's a credibility gap because you play gospel songs and praise and worship music at your desk all day long, but you show up late for work and you leave early and you don't get all your work done. Right? There's a credibility gap instead of a change worth investigating. And the, the, sometimes the most powerful missional thing that you can do is to get rid of the credibility gap. To help God like, shine a light on that credibility. If people are looking at my life and they're seeing that there's a credibility gap, Lord, would you remedy that in my life? Whatever that is, would you take it away? Would you heal me of it? And then secondly, would you bring about in my life a change worth investigating? And then thirdly, would you give me the tongue of the learned that I might know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary? Would you give me the right words to convey, to explain? This is what it is that you're wanting to know. This is the heart of it. This is the key. This is what Jesus has done in my life. And we know what happened there at the end of Peter's sermon 
The people were cut to the heart. They said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, all of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you, to your children, to as many as afar off, even to as many as the Lord our God should call. At the end of it, at the end of it, the goal of missional living is not just that we bring people to say a prayer, but that we bring people into the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The goal of missional living is to bring people to the table where they can sit with Jesus. The goal of missional living is to escort people into the restaurant that is the church and say, I've got a seat right here at the table where the Lord is waiting for you. He's been waiting. He's been sitting. He's been waiting for his moment to sit with you, to eat with you, to fellowship with you, to pour out his heart. And all Jesus is looking for from us is a yes. A yes to the question, are you willing to come and follow me? If you're willing to come and follow me, I will make you fishers of men. He promised at the end of this, you say, well, I don't know how to do it. That's okay. Jesus says, I will make you a fisher of men. Remember when he's in the boat with Peter and he tells Peter to cast the net out on the other side after Peter had fished all night and caught no fish and he casts the net out on the other side and Jesus whistles and every fish in the lake jumps in the net and Peter turns to Jesus and says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, Peter, just come follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. Come follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. All you've got to do is commit to the process. You've answered the invitation to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. But have you answered the original invitation of the original disciples of Jesus to become a fisher of men? Until you answer that call to become a fisher of men, your Christian life is all about you. You're still fishing for men, but you're fishing for men for yourself. You're fishing for affirmation from men. You're fishing for, for, for acceptance and you're fishing for security. You're fishing for what you can get. Your Christian life is focused on you. You're a self-centered Christian. But when you answer that call to become a fisher of men, all of a sudden your Christian life becomes about more than you. It's not just about you. And even what you do and don't do is no longer even about your Christian freedom. It's about what, what, what type of lifestyle do I need to live in order to be an effective fisher of men. Your consciousness is not just about yourself and your needs. You're no longer simply scanning the environment for your needs, but your ear is attuned to heaven and you're asking the question, Father, is there anyone that you could use me to reach today? Is there anyone that you can use me to impact for the gospel today? Is there anything that you can do with my life for the sake of others today? No longer can we use the excuse, I'm not called to be a pastor, I'm not called to be an evangelist, I'm not called to be a missionary. Who cares? Are you called to be a Christian? Are you called to be a disciple? If you're called to be a disciple of Jesus, you're called to be a fisher of men. If someone could come to the keyboard, we're going to pray. Somebody here almost came. <laughs> I mean at Living Hope. <laughs> Come on up, keyboard or guitar, I need a minstrel. Um, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. And I thank you for each and every one of these sons and daughters of yours. Sons and daughters whom you have called by name.
sons and daughters whom you have bought with a price. Lord, I pray for that shift to happen in our consciousness today. And that it would happen by way of decision. And that decision would be, I'm no longer going to fish for personal acceptance. I'm no longer going to fish for personal provision. But I'm going to fish for men. I'm going to be a kingdom opportunist. And Lord, would you teach me to live my life in such a way that you could use me anytime or anywhere? Would you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, enable me to live utterly open to your spirit and to your power and to your glory? And would you allow that river of living water to flow forth from my innermost being and let it impact somebody each and every day? God, I pray that I would not go to sleep at night until someone has been touched by the power of God through my life. Lord, it's not just for Indonesia. It's not just for Ethiopia. It's not just for the missions team. It's for right here in Emeryville, California. It's for right here in, in the Bay Area, right here where we live, right where we are. It's in our own homes. It's in our own communities. Lord, we've answered the call to receive you as Lord and Savior. But today we answer the call to become fishers of men. And I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would do this so mightily and so powerfully in our church that missional living would be a hallmark of every member of this house. And Lord, I just speak blessing and encouragement over each one. I give you glory today. In the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen.